Well, this morning is November 9th, 2003. It's Sunday morning, obviously. And uh, this morning's message is going to be called Attacks from Within and Without. Our uh, text this morning is going to come out of Nehemiah. I can't help but comment on that worship service, though. That was good stuff. You know, you gather a handful of people that really love the Lord, and He comes through. But what is equally amazing and I realize this could be indicting to people, and I mean it to be. I can't help it. What is amazing is that those that need this the most are always the ones that are absent when this happens. That's not by mistake. It really is not. And I'm not saying that like beating down on people. Or What I'm saying is there's a reason that you should sacrifice to get to these services. We're going to study something this morning that affects every person's life. But it's not just the teaching that you need to get here for. I mean, you can get that on on a CD. The problem is, when you're not ministered to by God's Spirit, you're subject to the enemy's attack. And everything in the world will come up from fever to, you know, uh, uncomfortable feelings about going to church in somebody's house. The devil will find every reason to keep you out of a service. We need to do whatever it takes to get in a service. You know, I wanted to go see the movie Matrix this this week. I hope that doesn't shock anybody. I was more than willing to drive, you know, 30 miles to leave when my family was asleep to go see it at night. You know, I mean, whatever it took. And I couldn't help. I was overcome with the thought. I was listening to Nehemiah on a CD on the way home. I was overcome with the thought. You can't get Christians to do this for church. You know, they won't get up early and go see a 4 a.m. showing or stay up and go to a midnight showing of of Jesus. But we'll go for a movie like Matrix. I don't say that to shame anybody. I mean, like I said, I'm the one who went to see the movie. But, y'all, we need to develop a right perspective of how important this is. People shed their blood to bring us these messages. And... I don't know. I just I'm, the words of Paul Young Cho are ringing in my ears. They ask him because he's got one of the largest churches in the world. Said, "Hey, what's the difference between the Koreans and the Americans?" And he had to catch himself because he was on American TV and he knew that. But without hesitation, the first words that came out of his mouth, especially if he hadn't caught himself, were, "The Koreans are more serious about the gospel." Now he stopped. He didn't say serious. He said, "The Koreans are more." Well, uh, it's more important in Korea to take these things with diligence, to be diligent about the gospel. We're so blessed sometimes. There's so many messages. There's so many churches. We just totally take it for granted. And you know what? As years go by and that happens and people get in the habit of doing that, you see it affects their lives. It affects their lives. They start to downward spiral. And always blaming others for why they're not there. It was the church. It was this. It was... All of those things. If you want to be here, God will find a way to get you here. You remember it was about three weeks ago we covered God will give you what you want. You just got to want it bad enough. You want to succeed in your job? All you got to do is want it bad enough and He will show you how to do that. Does that make sense to you all? Okay, we're going to be in Nehemiah. Uh, Is everybody in the book of Nehemiah already? It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and then, of course, Ezra, Nehemiah. 
So, to give you a little background on Nehemiah's life, his name means comforted by Yahweh. Man, that's awesome. If people didn't say anything else about you, I would like to be known as somebody who was comforted by Yahweh. You know, Gary and Rhonda are here and grafted in ministries will one day be in Israel. And I'm, you notice I start almost every message telling you about the subject of whoever I'm talking about that day, what their name means. I chose my children's names for a reason. I, I chose them because God led me to and for what they meant. It occurred to me the other night while I was eating with uh, Gary and Rhonda. They're going to begin a work in Israel. It might be 20 years from now. My sons with Jewish names may go help them in their ministry. You know, God is able to do big things if we'll just dream big dreams. But anyway, Nehemiah's name means comforted by Yahweh. He lived after the time that Cyrus had issued the decree to rebuild the temple. Uh, somewhere in the reign of Darius and Artaxerxes. Y'all remember that Israel goes into the Babylonian captivity. They're carried off in waves. Well, they begun, had begun after 70 years to return to their homeland in waves as well. They didn't all leave in a day. It, it happened over time. And in the time of Artaxerxes Langemanus, there was a decree that was issued. And this is so important, y'all. There was a decree issued to rebuild the temple walls. And when you study the book of Daniel, that decree and the timing of it is very important. Because Daniel said you could count off a time period from the issuing of that decree and the Messiah would show up. The reason we're going to study Nehemiah is because he was opposed by the enemy and he succeeded. He was opposed by the enemy because it was important to God's plan. Part of what I've been trying to teach is that each of you have a calling from God that's important to God's plan. So it will be opposed by the enemy. Isaiah had called Cyrus by name. Jeremiah had prophesied about the exile. And now we're in the time when that has been fulfilled. And all of a sudden, God's people have been thoroughly punished for their disobedience. Could be a time of solemn reverence and heartache. You know, I mean, this, this could be a time that was bad. But God appointed somebody who would go and bring social reform, would bring religious reform, and even change the physical structure of Jerusalem for its benefit. Ezekiel and Daniel had been prophesying in the Ezekiel in the countryside, Daniel in the city, for 70 years. But now we're at the time when something has to be done and their words are going to be fulfilled. Israel had faced huge problems and was in danger of being wiped out. Let's learn from Nehemiah's life and calling how this was dealt with. In Nehemiah 1... We're going to start. Nehemiah 1.1. 1, 1. Most people, and you know, critics are always going to say what critics say. You know, if you're going to write commentaries for a living, you have to come up with a new point of view or else nobody wants to buy your commentary. So sometimes they're skeptical and cynical for the place of being cynical, just, just for, for that. But most people believe that this book comes straight out of this guy's memoirs. That like the journal that is laying at my feet, the one that Gary has in his lap, Nehemiah wrote down things about his life, notes for himself, and that this book came from that. So chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, 
In the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. This guy was of Jewish descent. He was probably from the tribe of Judah. I mean, that's not known for certainty, but there are quite a few hints in this book that let you at least believe that, whereas tomb of his fathers were and many things like that. But he was concerned about the Jewish people. He was concerned about his brothers. In the church, so often we go through our daily lives without concern either for Israel, which is the most obvious, especially after we just taught on uh, Romans 11, Wednesday, but also without concern for our brothers in the church. You know, what can God do for... Have you noticed that the gospel that's preached on TV today is all about what God can do for you? You know, how God can make you rich. God can heal you. God can... You, you, you. It's all about me, me, me. That's not good. The first thing that you need to know about being called of God, about fulfilling God's desires, that it's about everybody else, not about you. It, you should be willing to be humiliated, crushed, abased, brought low, however you want to say that, for the sake of other people. This guy was concerned about his people. And listen, this is a key verse. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. At this moment, this man of God has become aware of a need. I don't know whether you realize it, but as you come across people, they will let you know things about their lives. doesn't take long. I was at a dinner table with people several weeks ago, and it just took, I saw their eyes start to narrow and start to water, and I realized, realized, wow, their walls have been broken down in their city that God was trying to build in them is in ruins. You can see it. People will let you know that they've been wounded, that they're hurt, that they have need for strengthening and edifying. You know, we charismatics love to talk about speaking in tongues. We love to talk about spiritual gifts. The entire purpose of the letter to the Corinthian church was that we learn to be edifying to the church, edifying to other people. The problem in Jerusalem was that they had no defense against their enemies. People could walk in and out because there was no godly wall there and take advantage of them at will. Have you not seen brothers or sisters that all the devil had to do was whisper in their ear and they were totally overcome by it? Their walls have been torn down. You know, the devil pulls the little string of lust and there are the people following after lust. He pulls the little string of whatever it is, greed. And all of a sudden the people are overcome with greed. You know, I've got a brother in this fellowship that I love dearly. The devil just jingles a little bell in front of his face. Like a puppet, he runs right after what the devil has to give him. Because his walls in that area are torn down. Now his is obvious to see. Some of yours are well hidden. We need to first acknowledge in our lives... Take an honest assessment of our walls. Where are we letting the enemy have his way with us? Where is he walking in and out of your life freely without any fear of attack, without any threat of resistance? And if you think you don't have those holes in your wall, you lie to yourself. You lie to yourself and you're beyond help because you don't acknowledge your own fault. 
Now, as soon as he became aware of this need in Jerusalem, listen to how he responds. Find this in verses 5 through 11. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. You know, the ungodly, when they see that you have a broken wall in your life, they laugh, they mock, they ridicule. They say, oh, Eric said he was a man of God, but did you hear what he did? They just take advantage of your broken wall. But when you, being godly, hear of your brother's weakness, when there's a shallow place in his wall, a low spot vulnerable to the enemy, you ought to cry for him. You ought to hurt in your heart for him. You ought to pray. You ought to immediately think, what can I do to help bear this brother's burden? But that's not usually what we do. We congregate with people that have light strengths and, and don't have certain weaknesses. Drug addicts? No, I don't want anything to do with them. I'm better than that. You know, people that have sins in whatever areas, they're scared. I, I'll give you an example. If all of a sudden you found out the person sitting on your right or left was a homosexual, you know, would you want to scoot your chair away? What if they're trying to come to the Lord with all their heart, but that's a place where the enemy has found a low spot in their wall, and since birth, he had been working on them. We need to not be so self-righteous, and we need to think about how we can edify others as opposed to ourselves. So as soon as he becomes aware of this, he wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Notice this prayer that is recorded here came after days of weeping, praying, and fasting. I'm not suggesting that the moment you see a need, you rush to meet it. God may not want you to feed that person who's on the street. There might be a reason they're there. He may not want you to write a check for somebody who's in financial distress. But He also might. You need to be open to both possibilities. Dedicate it to the Lord with prayer, with fasting, with weeping, and be prepared to act. You know, we get callous. We think, well, that's their problem. Yeah, and how many problems have you had that God bore for you? And we are His hands and feet on earth. If God wants to bear somebody's problem here, He's going to use you to do it. Have you ever heard somebody try to step out in faith for God? And it didn't seem to go so well. And you say, yeah, and now they want us to bail them out. No, they want God to bail them out. And it's you who are their hands and feet, that are God's hands and feet, that are supposed to bail them out. You think the things that you have are for your benefit? The things that you have belong to God and are on loan for you. And you know what? I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about your kids, your time, your likes and dislikes. Your very freedom belongs to God. He set you free from slavery to sin that you might be a slave to Him. You are God's bond servant. And if you're not, then you're a slave to sin. As Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. So he records this prayer. Here is prayer. Y'all, this is awesome. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands. Let your ear be attentive and your ears and your eyes, I'm sorry, open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Now, Wednesday I talked about a proper perspective and persistence prevailing with God. And that perspective, understanding our place with Israel, 
this guy was praying day and night for his people. Now that applies to the Gentile church, but it also applies to us being mindful of God's will for the nations and praying for it day and night. It ought to be on your mind. God will never open up an opportunity for you to go be in Honduras or Germany or across the street to your neighbor if you're not mindful of those needs and praying that they're met. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Have you ever noticed that when people talk about sin, they apply it to everybody but themselves? Those people who gossip. Those people who do those things. Those people who are evil. Those people. This guy knew right away he was an Israelite guilty of the same sins the other Israelites were. Now, you can take this teaching, as some have, this, this particular prayer and Daniel's prayer, people confessing the sins of a nation and asking God to restore the nation, and try to apply it to ours. And if that's what God's put in your heart, great. I don't think that's what it means. But what I'm trying to bring to your attention about his prayer is he was more than willing to acknowledge his own fault before God. He wasn't praying for those poor people over there who were sinning, as if he were not one of their number. But when we pray for people, I'll give you an example. This morning, we prayed for two people that are in church somewhere for the first time this morning. Did you have a tendency to think of them as, oh, those poor people who are unchurched? You know, that ought not be how it is. Because you were pulled out of the same miry clay. You know, we, God raises us to the heights of Mount Zion and we forget that we were in the Kidron Valley where they were burning trash and the worm never dies. We forget about where we've come from. That was I'm still stuck on last week's message. I'm sorry. That's the proper perspective. You should have the right perspective. Anyway, he's ready to help. He confesses the sins of the Israelites. Verse 7. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I can't help just because of Gary and Rhonda being here this morning and thinking about that. Something that the Messianic Jewish community or the completed Jewish community, whatever phrase we tend to want to put on people, also need to be aware of. Is just like the book of Romans says that our purpose as Gentiles is to make Jews envious. The Jewish people who are receiving Jesus need not be arrogant about their heritage. They need to remember that they were sent off into exile because of their great unfaithfulness. That the reason the law was added was because of their transgression. So God has bound all men over to disobedience that he might show grace to all. This applies to both. And it's the great mystery that Paul wrote about through all of his letters. Verse 10. They are your servants and a people whom you redeemed by your great strength in your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant. To the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, I don't expect you guys to have read Nehemiah. I do hope that you have since I told you I was going to preach on it. would like for you guys to begin to prepare yourselves before you come in here. But notice this. He hears of a problem from his brothers. 
He immediately begins to pray. Now he's ready to respond. This prayer, he's praying, he's praying while on his way to speak with the king. Sometimes we pray, but we're never ready to act. I mean, we pray, and if God does not use Charlton Heston's voice, part the heavens, and demand that you do something, we just pray. I love Reinhard Bunker's attitude. He says, you pray for the will of God, and I will run you over while I am doing the will of God. See, we think we fulfilled our obligation by saying, Lord God, please bless Jennifer and Bethany. I need to be mindful that it might be me he uses to bless her and stand ready to do that. This guy was praying this prayer while he was walking to the king to do something about the situation. He said, well, what can I do? Well, what could Nehemiah do? You know what his job was? He was the cupbearer to the king. He was the royal cupbearer. His basic job, although this was a position of prestige, when it boils right down to it, you know what his job was? If any Baptists get this, this uh, CD, they'll love this. His job was to drink wine. That was his job. His job was to take a sip of the king's wine before the king did to make sure it wasn't poisoned. What if he went, oh no, nothing like that's ever touched my lips. I'm sure those pagan kings, they, they didn't drink wine that was fermented, right? I can't help it. Aren't some of the traditions that we've surrounded ourselves with utterly ridiculous? I mean, is it not pathetic when you actually get in the Word? Speak, brother. Yeah, at the end of the Kidron Valley. That's why I mentioned it. It was a place of refuge that was burning 24 hours a day. It was a daily reminder. And Jesus came among many who played on that and said, That's right. You know, you'll go here forever and ever, a place like this. And how much today have we we removed that from our society? That's right. And we've painted whitewashed walls so that we can you know, as I was teaching on Matthew 15 in these last couple of weeks, I told y'all the Kidron Valley and one end of it was the garbage dump. And that is what Jesus was referring to when he said hell quite a few times. It's interesting that the resurrection that will occur is on a mountainside overlooking hell. I mean, it's, it's overlooking the Kidron Valley. Isn't that interesting? This guy's a cupbearer, though. And he's in the presence of the king, and he finds total favor with the king. God will use even an unclean bird like a raven or a crow to bring you godly substance. We saw that with Elijah. Elijah's not even allowed to touch the bird, but God brings him food through it. Well, God uses the monarch of a wicked, sinful country to bless the people of God. You know, have you ever wondered whether you can work in a Toyota factory because they might be Buddhist and you're making, or, you know, can I uh, have a Toshiba TV in my house because it was made by somebody who didn't love God? You know, and that, that, those kind of things. God uses the ungodly to bless the godly all of the time. He also uses them to chasten you if you're not doing well. You sin before God and it might be your secular boss who brings the hammer down on you. He uses all kind of things like that. But Nehemiah finds favor with the king. He goes immediately to the king. He prays as he's walking into the king's presence. You know what's interesting? So Nehemiah's got his mission from this king. The the king says, hey, go, man. 
You go bless your people. You want to rebuild the walls? You rebuild the walls. I'll give you letters. And Nehemiah was not scared to ask for these, by the way. You know, sometimes we as the people of God, when standing before ungodly people of power, we are scared like to ask them for what we really need. I was one time going to an interview and God spoke to me and gave me seven things to ask for. I was I was beside myself. There's no way I can ask her for this. You know, I was interviewing with a woman. He told me not to think too small. That's the best advice I ever got. Of course, it came from God. I got everything that I asked for. And you know what? If God hadn't encouraged me about that, I wouldn't have asked. Well, Nehemiah asked this king, I want letters to all of these governors. I want troops to go with me. I, I want uh, uh, wood from your forest. You know, and I want the king to issue these letters for me. And the guy did everything because he found favor with him. As soon as Nehemiah is given this commission, go rebuild the wall. It's favor from the king because he saw the need. You know what happens? Look at Nehemiah 2.10. Same thing happens to you as soon as you receive a commission from God. To do anything, opposition begins to form. If God tells you to go see that stranger who's pumping gas and do something for them, tell them Jesus loves them, buy their gas, give them a Coke, whatever it is He tells you to do, immediately opposition forms. 2.10. When Sanballat, the Horonite... (laughs) I don't know why I like that word so much describing him, but Sanballat was a Horonite. Incidentally, that's just a Samaritan tribe. All right? People of mixed descent who were no longer pure blood Jews, if there even was such a thing. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. You know, What's sad is there's a lot of churches that are spiritually Samaritans and Ammonites because you begin to talk to them about the welfare of Israel and they think Israel's purpose is to be a kicking boy for the Antichrist while you're off in heaven being blessed. I mean, they, well, those Jews, all of those bowls of wrath, all of those things, those are for the Jews, you know, while, while we get blessed. People are greatly d- disturbed to find out that you have in your heart a mission that would bless the Israelites. Well, that's Israel. Talking about the whole church, spiritual Israel. As soon as you set out to bless somebody in the kingdom of God, there are going to be people who oppose you. They don't want you building up the Janines of this world, the Bills of this world, the Stacys. They don't want you concerned about their welfare because the God of this world is used to kicking them around. You know what? Somebody could just be hurting Judah every day. Right? Be oppressing him every day. And while I don't know about it, I'm not doing anything. But as soon as I become aware, you better believe that there is a godly mission in me to stop the abuse. Well, this is kind of what's going on here. These people who have been abusing God's people, hear somebody's coming to stop it, and they say, hey, no, no, no. Don't be concerned for their welfare, because then I might have to stop kicking them around. Isn't that just like the devil? Not only does he want to hurt you, he wants to stop anybody from helping you or stopping him from hurting you. So right away, there are two people, two people groups that are going to oppose God's work. The problem is that the wall is in disrepair. The enemy is having his way and the people are defenseless. One of the reasons the enemy was taking such note about this wall from a spiritual standpoint 
is because from the time this decree was issued, so many years would go by and then the Messiah would show up. So he tried to stop the rebuilding of the wall. The same way, if he knew that Moses was going to come from, or that a deliverer was going to come to Egypt from the Israelite babies, well, let's just kill the babies. You know, this was a preemptive strike to try to stop the Messiah from coming. You know what? I bet Nehemiah didn't, wasn't even aware in his life that that was... He may have been, but I mean, there's no mention of it in his memoirs or in his book. Sometimes you don't know that the act of kindness, the good work God prepared in advance for you to do, has bigger effects, bigger ramifications than just the people that are involved. It may be the next event that triggers something spiritually. Naming your children might be one of the catalysts for a revival in Israel. Who would have ever known that a woman who tithed the bowl of rice or somebody who gave a bicycle to Cho helped begin his ministry? Who would have ever thought such a thing? Who would have ever thought that that didn't just affect the woman or Cho, but the 750,000 people that go to his church? Who would have ever thought in my life, meeting a crazy hippie pastor who was tattooed, who was uh, from a common background, a chance encounter would change my life the way that it did. And that because of that, I would be changing other people's lives. See, you have, you, We can't see be into the spirit and beyond what's in front of us, but we need to consider it. In Nehemiah 2, 16, Nehemiah begins to, he's already inspected the wall. He's found it in disrepair and he's concerned. If y'all are cold, you can turn off that fan. And he begins to announce his mission to his people. The officials did this, is Nehemiah 2.16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Sometimes when you receive a commission from God, it's not the wisest thing to run tell everybody. You know, you wait for God's timing because people will just pour water on your vision. Nehemiah got there for himself. He inspected it for himself. He began to set up things and formulate a plan. Then he told the people. But here's something that is good that you need to know. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in in Jerusalem? I'm sorry. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this work. Y'all, when you see a need for repair, let's start with ourselves first and then we'll move out. When you see a need in your own life where there's a place in the wall that does not look good to you, You know, you know, in this area, I've been weak. I've allowed the devil in in this area. Or I've not been as strong as God wanted me to be in this area. The first thing you need to do is acknowledge that it's there. Just like these people did. The second thing you need to do is be willing to commit to rebuild it. Shame on you. And I say this. I mean this literally. My job is to bless you. But shame on you if you accept your life the way that it is today. Shame on you. Because God's called you to be a work in progress. He's called you to advance further tomorrow than you were today. Have you ever had the thought, well, that's just the way that I am? It comes from hell. Get rid of that line from your vocabulary. It is wrong. That's just the way that I am. What you're saying is, 
although I'm supposed to be being made new in this area, I want to stay lost. You can't. It's a contradiction in terms. You're either being made new or you're fighting to stay the way you were. Let's be made new. That's rebuilding. Quit accepting your faults as, oh, well, it's just the way that I am. Here's one more hint. This must be done with mercy. And I emphasize that. But don't accept other people's faults for the way they are. I've heard for years. Oh, Eric, you have to understand that's just the way they are. I won't accept that about myself. And I won't accept it about you or anybody else either. If you're in Christ and there's something that that well, they reacted that way because that's just the way they are. Then I think, well, let's figure out how to encourage them to change that because it's wrong. <laughs> let's quit living with our broken down walls. So the people are willing. But again, as soon as the people commence this work, let's rebuild our walls. This action causes a reaction. This is the attacks from without right now. There's two kind of categories we're going to talk about today. The attack that comes from the enemy outside of the wall trying to get you on the inside. And then the second category is going to be the attack that actually occurs within your walls. These people set to rebuild the wall. And then we see in 2.19, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. You know, I remember the weaknesses that I have in my life. I remember some of the weaknesses that I know about from your lives. And as soon as you try to change those, as soon as you take your godly stand and you say, you know, I've been weak in this area, but I will not be weak anymore. The enemy is right there mocking you, ridiculing. Oh, yeah, you've tried before. You've told those people before that you wouldn't do that and you'll fail again. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the drug addict who shoots up, you know what the devil tells him as soon as he tries to make his stand? Uh -huh. Yeah, I've heard that before, buddy. You're not going to rebuild this wall. I'm used to coming back and forth here. It won't work. They mock. They ridicule you. Now, drug habit, that's easy to see. But what about gossip? You ever tried to quit gossiping? And as soon as you say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, you find yourself doing it. How about any other sin? Here's a good one. Have you muddied the waters with people you work with? I have. You talk with them about things that godly people shouldn't talk about? Made jokes with them or laughed at their jokes that were not godly? And now you say, I'm going to take my stand. I'm going to be godly. I'm going to rebuild that area in my life so that I can be a witness to them. And what's the devil tell you? They'll never receive your witness now. You, you might as well leave that job, go find another one, because your witness is blown, buddy. I say, Eric, you say that with enthusiasm. Oh, yeah, I've heard that lie. How many times have we worked together, Gary? <laughs> you know, I know it happened. He's at least a witness that I've blown my witness everywhere I've ever worked. And yet people get saved. How is that? God will turn your weakness into strength. You just got to give him a chance. So right there, these people decide to rebuild the wall and the enemy comes against them and mocks them and ridicules them. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? The enemy is never content just to mock you and ridicule you. They're going to lie about you too. 
Nehemiah had not, did not have a question of rebellion in his heart. He was friends with the king. The king had blessed him. The enemy will not only mock you, ridicule you, and intimidate you, they will lie about you. Well, you know, I heard Eric say, when they didn't really hear Eric say. They might like to have heard Eric say that, but he didn't say it. You know, at my work, where I work right now, there are people that serve foreign gods. Okay? They rejoice if I do make a mistake, and even if I've not made the mistake, many times they credit it to me anyway. You know? Well, I know Eric feels this way. When I never shared my confidence with them, they do it to stir up trouble. They don't even realize they're being puppets. So you be prepared. When you start to rebuild a wall in your life when you've been weak, you're going to be mocked, ridiculed, and people will lie about you. So just, you'll love this word, suck it up. It's going to happen. You're going to be a Christian, you should expect it. Just like you expect to be blessed, you should expect to be cursed by the enemy. You know, why is that missing from preaching? Why does nobody tell you, now that you're born again, there's going to be an entire rebellious spiritual contingent that hates you, wants to kill you, would love to see you dead, and will defame you everywhere you go. Why isn't it told? Because we want to give gift certificates to see people saved. We want to build churches and it's all about numbers. Well, it's evident that's not what we're about. And there is a godly remnant around the United States that that's not what they're about. So they mocked, ridiculed, and then they lied. Here's what your response should be. When people mock you, when they ridicule you, and when they lie about you, this is how Nehemiah answered them, and this is how you should answer. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. When the devil says, You can't succeed, Jan. You won't. You say, hey, I may not be able to, but you know what? The God of heaven's going to give me success. I'm not relying on my own strength. I'm wholly reliant on His. You know why? He told me to do this. You say, but I don't know if He told me to do it. Let's start with employment. If you're working somewhere, God wants you there. Okay? Now, there may be a time where He tells you to leave, but Acts 17 clearly says He would determine the places you would work. So let's get out of our minds. I zigged when I should have zagged and now I'm in hell at this job. No, you're right where God wanted you to be. Now succeed in it. And the devil will tell you you can't. He will list every reason that you can't. And you look him square in the eye and say, God will give me success. Now if that's true about a workplace, you can apply it to every other place in your life. God has told you to be holy. In areas you've not been holy, and the devil says you can't get holy, you've tried before, you failed, you've struggled with wrong thinking, whatever it is, you look him in the eye and say, God will give me success. And then refuse to talk to him about it. You ought not be having long conversations with the devil. Have you ever said, you know, I said to myself, you're telling somebody a story, no, you didn't. You didn't say that to yourself. You said that to the one that your flesh loves, the devil. You're not... There's no such thing as talking with yourself. You're talking to one spiritual power or the other. The God of heaven will give me success. Even if you could talk to yourself, you ought not. (laughs) You know, be careful the conversations you have with self. Self's a bad guy. He wants what he wants. 
So the proper reply is the God of heaven will give me success. You're wholly relying on him. Look at chapter four now. Let's look at the second way the enemy comes against you. First, he tells you, don't even start this project. You won't succeed. Then secondly, he comes against you with discouragement as he sees you making progress. In fact, because he sees you making progress, listen to what he says. Chapter four, verse one. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Why? Why do the enemies of the gospel get angry when they see the gospel advancing? Because you're taking their territory. You are on this planet for one purpose, to advance the kingdom of God. To advance the kingdom, you have to take it from somebody. Well, they're angry when you do that. Let's break that down a little further. How do you take the territory of the enemy? How do you advance the kingdom of God? You do it by rebuilding the wall in your life. You do it one life at a time, starting with yours. You do it by recognizing your king, Jesus, dominion in your life, in every area. If God hadn't been God of your finances, well, that's an area you need to rebuild the wall. If God hasn't been God over your entertainment situation, you know, if your flesh is drawn to things that God would not be drawn to, well, rebuild the wall. You know, sometimes we get in the habit of doing things we ought not be doing. And we get used to it. We make our bed right next to the enemies of God and we're happy to do so. So Sanballat hears and he becomes angry and incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. Well, that's no big deal. He's been doing that. And in the presence of his associates, the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? You know who was Sanballat and Tobiah and Buzz's life? Since everybody here knows Buzz, or at least heard me talk about him. People said, you're going to start a church with those kids? You know, when the devil couldn't get him to not start the church, the next thing he tried to do is discouraging, discouraging him while he was doing it. You're going to bring those stones to life? You kidding me? That can't be done. Same thing happens to me. Same thing happens to you in your life. What do you mean you're going to go to Texas and start a church? You don't know anybody there. You just now got to know people in Louisiana. Well, God will give me success. Incidentally, can God take lifeless stones and bring them to life? You better believe it. He'll replace you with a rock if he needs to. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their wall of stones. If they can't keep you from starting the work God called you to do, they're going to discourage you in it and tell you, even if you do complete it, it won't be what you think it is. It'll be torn down. Oh, you may have a church today, but you'll blow it sooner or later. Oh, you may be maintaining your witness at work and you've rebuilt that wall. It's all right. You'll blow it at some point. You know, I had a guy work with me one time and I was doing good. I was a brand new Christian. I was doing good on the job side. I was loving everybody. This guy worked me day and night to try to get me to sin. And I, I one day blew my top, threw down my tools, and was, I was angry. I said, fine, this is what you want? And as soon as he saw that in me, he was always trying to push me around physically. And, you know, 
That was an area of weakness in my life. It was an area where God was building a wall. As soon as he saw light through the hole in the wall, like there might be a weakness, he started laughing. He said, I knew I could get you. I knew I could get you. All he wanted, all he wanted was to see a crack in the wall. I learned from that. I've learned a lot from that. We need to be aware of the enemy's schemes. When you hear those same old familiar lies, then you react. And when you react, you do it just like this. Verse 4. Nehemiah says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Think about what he said. It was the same as his first response. You remember when they ridiculed him the first time? What did he say? The Lord our God will give us success. In a nutshell, what he said here is, Lord, you deal with them because you've called me to do this. You've called me to build this and they're resisting me. So it's not really me they're resisting. It's you. They're trying to impede your success. When people come against you, you need to not view it personally. You ought not personalize this. What you ought to do is say, you know what? They're not against me. They're against God. Let it rest on His shoulders. He's big enough to handle it. But even that is not enough. The next thing you need to do is in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked on it with all their heart. It's not enough for you to say, hey man, you're resisting God. You need to continue in the work God called you to do. So number one, rely on God. Number two, refuse to quit doing what God's called you to do. You know how many times we get our feelings hurt because we face resistance? We take our ball and go home. The next thing after the fact that you don't quit is a little further down towards verse 10. Let me just read on through that. Starting in... While you go there, yeah. I just can't help but think that a lot of times you, you encounter resistances because people, even in the kingdom, see you advancing the kingdom and they're... Jealous. That. They're jealous because they, jealous. Do, they have a work and they should be advancing the gospel. Yeah. It's convicting to them. It's convicting. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked on it with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah... The Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard what the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against us or against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. It's not enough that you rely on God. That really is not. You also must keep working. In addition to relying on God and still doing your work, you must meet the threats of the enemy. When the devil tells me, oh, no way, so-and-so will never make it. They'll never make it. Even though you're trying to rebuild the wall in their life, you're trying to be uh, a godly influence, you're trying to encourage them, they'll never make it. I meet that threat head on. See, you know what? Your will won't be done, but God's will will. In your life, when the devil's coming against you, it's not enough for you to just say you rely on God. You keep doing the things God's shown you to do, and you meet his every threat. He says, if you do that, they will react like this. 
say, okay, well, I'm going to rely on God. I'm going to keep doing that. And you know what? Since you seem to be trying to intimidate me by the reaction, let's go get the reaction right now. Hey, if y'all didn't know, I'm called of God and I'm here to advance his kingdom. You face the threat head on. And then it holds no power over you. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. Not only should you be relying on God, not only should you be continuing the work, not only should you meet every threat, but you need to learn to station men at the exposed places in your wall. When you have a history of repeated failure in a certain area, when you're having trouble getting the victory in a certain area and you're trying to continue in the work, you know what you need to do? You need to go grab a brother who has a sword and a shield and a spear and all those things and say, hey, I need your help. I need you to pray for me in this area. You know why we don't do that very often? We're scared to death of what that brother might think if they know about your weakness. You need to station people that will help protect you. This might mean taking away some of your freedoms. It may mean that your godly brother said that computer's causing you problems. Let's pray about it. You continue to have problems. They say, hey, let's try this cyber nanny stuff. You continue to have problems. Maybe that godly brother will say, hey, because I'm standing in the low place in this wall and trying to help you, I'm recommending you throw the computer out with the trash. You know, Sometimes we don't station people at the low points in the wall because we're scared to death. It might actually breed success. And a big part of us wants to keep on having that low place in the wall because we're used to it. We need to be willing to stand in the low places in the wall for our brothers. We need to be willing to do that. Not sanctimoniously, not self-righteously. You need to be willing to say, Gary, that's an issue. Brother, let me help you with that. You get discouraged, I'm going to encourage you. You think that this, well, let me help you with what God thinks. Not one time, but for the rest of his life if I need to. That's how you be armor bearers for each other. It never happens if you can't acknowledge where there's low spots in the walls, though. Never happens. Not only should you rely on God, not only should you continue in your work, not only should you meet the threats of the enemy, but you should also be willing to say, hey... We've got low spots in our defenses. I need your help. It might mean unplug your TV set. might mean, oh, how about this one, husbands? I only got three of us in here today, so we're a minority. How about this one? Maybe you have to tell your wife, sweetheart, I need your help. I'm having trouble with my eyes, Roman. You know, sometimes the gospel is not easy. Sometimes it's pretty self-abasing. But you know what? When you signed on, you pledged to die to your desires and take up the kings. Those were all attacks from without. And there's one more. 
If the enemy can't stop you from starting the work and he can't discourage you while you're doing the work. I'm sorry, there's one more thing I want you to know about that. When you station people in the wall, there's a requirement. Okay? Don't ask people to help you that can't do this. Don't go to help somebody else if you can't do this. You know what the requirement for standing in the wall, in the low spots, in the exposed places for someone is? You'll find it in verse 23 of chapter 4. Neither I nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. You cannot expect people who are part-time Christians to be of any benefit to you. What we tend to do is gather around us people who are not convicting to us. People who have the same weaknesses as us so that it doesn't bother us. What you should be looking for are people that refuse to take off their weaponry, their righteous armor, their clothes, their belt of truth, their breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, all those things. Day or night, they will stand there and be godly. Not those that are part-time and just look the other way whenever you sin. Do you understand what I'm saying about that? That's Gideon's 300. The people that stood in the wall were those that were spiritually minded, who would give their lives for their brothers. You need to look at, at the people that you surround yourself with and say, would they give their life for me? Are they just here because I do something for them? Or do I just have them here because they do something for me? Sometimes our relationships have unhealthy dependencies. You know, we're friends with somebody for what they can do for us. Or we are somebody's friend because they need us. But that may not be what God's called you to do. Okay, we're going to get to the last threat in coming from outside the city. I'm doing just fine on time. In chapter 6. If he can't stop you from starting and he can't discourage you while you're doing it so that you quit, listen to what he'll do next. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of... Oh, no. <laughs> I love this. When your enemies say, hey, hey, I couldn't get you to stop. I can't discourage you from starting. So, hey, look, come meet. Let's talk. You should go, oh, no. <laughs> they asked him to meet on the plane of, oh, no, and it would have been an, oh, no, if he went. Listen, you think they're all of a sudden interested in his welfare? It says, but they were scheming to harm me. If the devil can't keep you from starting, if he can't discourage you and cause you to quit, he will kill you if he can. You need to be careful about leaving the protection of the walls that God has put around you and going out to the plane of, oh no. See, what happens sometimes as Christians is we're fighting the good fight. We're building the wall. When... You are struggling. You call your friend who's standing in the low spot in the wall and you say, hey, I need help. But then you begin to feel the enticement to go outside of the city walls. You know, my buddy Bill, 
He does fine while he's inside this city wall. But he begins to get enticed to go outside to where Samballot is, to Ono. And that he doesn't buy dope in a church. You know what? No guy's ever looked at pornography while sitting in church, at least not in a spirit-filled church that I know of. No wife's ever considered cheating on her husband while sitting in a church pew. Not, I mean, at least nobody with a pure heart. But it happens when you're pulled outside of your city walls. You're somewhere you ought not be. Thinking about something you ought not be thinking about. And it's because the devil wants to kill you. Y'all understand? To borrow an expression from some of my friends, you feel me? <laughs> you know what I'm trying to tell you? Sometimes we sin because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. We're on the plane of oh no. And you ought not be there. God's working to build up your walls so that you can be in a city that is defendable. Don't leave the city of refuge. Don't do that. You know, some of our behavior that we have, have you ever noticed that you act one way around all the people that are godly and another when everybody around you is not godly? Now, it's not willful compromising. You just notice that maybe you phrase things differently. Maybe you laugh at things you wouldn't laugh at otherwise. Don't get pulled out into the plane of, oh, no. (laughs) Those were all attacks that were from without. You remember that they were trying to intimidate him? They're trying to get him outside the wall to kill him. Nehemiah goes on to say, they're, they're trying to get me out there to harm me. And they're hoping that my hands won't be strong enough to finish the work. So he just simply prayed. Prayed, Lord, make my hands strong enough to finish the work. That was verse 8. That was his response to them. First off, he said, you guys are making all this, these rumors up in your head. I'm not going out to meet with you. There's no reason to meet with you. You're just scheming. And I will finish the work. That determined persistence causes you to prevail. Let's look at attacks from within, though. Sometimes it's easiest to see the attacks that are coming from outside of your walls towards the inside. And we fall for the attacks that are inside the walls. We're staying in the same chapter. And when the enemy can't overcome you directly, he begins to try to use those who are around you as tools. Think about Jesus. The devil met him head on in the desert. Tried to overcome him directly. Come from outside the walls to the inside. Did he succeed? No. So what did the devil do next? He raised up people around Jesus who would kill him. Who would turn him over to be killed. Let's look at those attacks. In chapter 6, verse 10... says, one day I went to the house of Shimea, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabul. <laughs> and if I have to say that again, I probably won't be able to. Who was shut in at his home. This is a city of Jerusalem. The guy's got a house. Shimea's got a house in it. And he's shut in. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Have you ever had somebody that hears about your boldness, sees you, and they come and they approach you as a friend? Eric, I just want you to know that those people you're talking to, they really aren't receiving what you're saying. Or they really don't like you. Or 
whatever it is, all, all as a friend, mind you, just to warn you so that you're not harmed. You're doing what God's called you to do, but they're just they're just being God's servant, warning you, right? Warning you basically that there's consequence for the work that you're doing. Think about this. This guy's shut in his house. He's not outside building the wall, is he? Uh-uh. Why do you think he's shut in his house? Because he's scared to death. He's scared to death of the enemy. He's already compromised because of the fear that he has for the enemy. He's already given in. And because of a jealousy, seeing you completing the work that God wants you to do, He wants you to stop. He's become their agent so that you'll have the same flaw He does. Kind of like the man of God from Judah goes to Samaria. He prophesies. But he meets an old prophet on the way back. And the old prophet doesn't rest until he causes him to sin just like him. Shemaiah says, hey, they're trying to kill you. But verse 11, listen to how Nehemiah said, Should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Now that could sound arrogant, huh? Should somebody like me run? It's not what he's saying. He's saying if God called me to lead this work and I run, what will that mean for all the people that are under me? Say, I can't. I'm not going to. You need to pray for godly discernment in your life. Because listen to his discernment working here. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Listen to how how he decides to deal with it. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Sometimes the attack that comes against you is from your own people because they're used to compromising with the enemy. They like the wall being low because it's unconvicting for them. The devil can go back and forth and they can claim that they're the people of God. You remember when Samson ends up in the hands of the Philistines? His own people tied him up. Then the woman that he loved cut his hair. You know... His problem was not in defeating the enemy. His problem was the attack that came from within inside his own walls. We need to be careful who we let be our confidant. Also, you need to be a, you need to consider that flattering tongue comes from the devil, because usually these shemayas in our life, they don't just come to you one time. They come and they say what the Pharisees said to Jesus: "Oh, good teacher." <laughs> they come with a lot of flattery so they can gain your trust and then they tell you things that defile. Be careful that you don't let a people who are intimidated infect your, call, infect your calling, your godly calling with their sickness. That they don't cause you to compromise. They're shut in their houses because they're scared to do anything for God and they're offended that you're trying. They fear the enemy because they don't have a perfect love for God that dries out the fear like you do. And God will give you discernment and show you who they are if you let Him. The second attack that comes from within your walls is in Nehemiah 5. Go back a page. This is probably the most disgusting. Nehemiah 5.1 We're going to read through 8. 
Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. So we're talking about people who are supposed to be your brothers here. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. In other words, hey, we have needs. Others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, and we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them. In my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You are exacting usury from your own countrymen. What we do sometimes in the church, the attack from within inside the wall, it's not the enemy who comes and oppresses you. We oppress our own brothers and sisters. We say, Well, I helped you this time. We keep score with one another, we hold sway over people's heads. I'll give you what you need if you do what I want you to. You ever had somebody bless you with a string attached? You need to be aware. If somebody tells you up front, if I give you this, I want you to do thus and so, throw it back in their face. Don't you take it. It's filthy lucre. If the devil can't get you from the outside, he will begin to work from the inside to control you. You never had Christians try to control you in your life? Gary, I believe you're called of God, but I think you ought to do it this way. Here, work under my umbrella. You know, a, a Baptist pastor told me one time, you know, Eric, I see that you're called here. I want you to go to these schools, take my sermons, preach these messages. It's where all the money is. Why did he want that? Because he had already compromised. He wanted me to do the same. This attack was coming from within inside the walls. He's trying to manipulate me to get me to do what he wants me to do. Also, we do favors for people. Do you expect a favor in return? That's exacting usury from your brother. If you lend to your brother with the thought that he will have to repay you, that's exacting usury. That kind of stuff goes on in the church all the time. Sometimes, especially this happens in churches with multiple classes of people, economic classes, those who are, are wealthy like the idea that they're benefactors. But they're only benefactors if the people that they consider beneath them, the serfs who are receiving money and stuff, treat them a certain way. You know, with the utmost respect, as if they're better. You know, this kind of treatment of each other in the church is destroying the work of God. More than attacks from the outside to the end. We dev Christians devour Christians all of the time. How many churches have you been to that were 300 people and are now 50 people. And when you talk about it, it's because of a Christian's behavior towards their brother. And it split it. It fragmented it. And they all went off other directions. That wasn't the devil attacking over the wall. That was attacks from within the walls. We need to be wise. And you know what? The easiest way to deal with all this is by the word. Treat your brother like you would want him to treat you. That's not very hard, is it? You always know how you want to be treated. Just consider that before you treat somebody else a certain way.
The devil destroys the work of God more from the inside than ever coming from the outside. The last one is probably the one that you get that is hardest to acknowledge in your life. In Nehemiah 10, the nobles of Israel are making a pledge to God. And one of their promises is in 10 verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Flip to chapter 13. We'll read one more thing and I'll explain what I'm talking about. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah. This is verse 23 of 13. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. The other attack that comes from within the church is that we forsake our rightful spouse and we covenant with another. I'm not talking about a husband-wife relationship here. What I'm talking about are your walls built. You've got brothers who will stand in the gap for you. You know that you should treat your brothers with respect. But you've made a covenant with the enemy. You're married to a certain sin. And you've decided to live with it day and night. Even though it's affecting your family. Here's a good one. Okay. Don't anybody throw Bibles at me. But if you've been angry for more than 24 hours, you've married yourself to a sin. If there's somebody that you're angry with today, and you were angry with them yesterday, you've just married a foreign bride. Because God says you're not allowed to let the sun go down on your anger. And yet, there you are. You've dressed it up real pretty. You've found it attractive. You've brought it to live with you. And it's going to stay with you forever as a foreign bride. And it will affect everybody around you. Oh, I love Jesus, but so-and-so, I hope I never see them again. That's a foreign bride. You're not allowed to have that. It will defile your children and it will defile your household. Anger's one. There's a bunch of them. We decide to live with things as an addition to Christianity that we know are not right. And they're foreign brides. And you know how they were to be dealt with? The Bible said, don't do it, and they should be put to death. Now, you can think of every reason on earth not to put your foreign bride to death. You love her. (laughs) I love being angry with this person. After all, they hurt me. Uh, Not only do you... Not only do you love her, you made a promise. A foreign bride might be a relationship that you have with somebody who's lost. Well, I promised them I'd be there for them. I'd be their friend, but your counsel with them has not been godly. And it's a foreign bride that you need to divorce. But I gave my word. You feel obligated by a sense of guilt. A friend of mine has a foreign bride in his life. And uh, one of the things that he had to do 
was he gave somebody his driver's license as a pledge, okay, that he would come back and pay them for something he was never supposed to have in the first place. He feels bound by a sense of honor. I gave my word to this man that I would pay him in order to redeem my license. I said, you don't need your license. He goes, but I told the guy I would come. I said, no, you don't need it. You're not supposed to have that relationship. guy gave his license to somebody to get dope because he didn't have any money on him. It's a foreign bride in his life he's learned to live with, the dope, right? He's actually considering going to pay this guy to get his license. Why? Because he promised he would. Do you see how that thinking is twisted? You don't owe anything to the foreign bride in your life. You're not supposed to have them there. You say, well, I would get rid of Showtime since I'm sinning by watching it. But I signed a contract. Get rid of it and pay the contract. It's a foreign bride. Don't stay with it out of a sense of obligation. Foreign brides can be things that are in your life that you're not supposed to have. They can be things that you feel obligated to other than the kingdom. I know I should be in church, but I also have this other thing that I have to... Well, it's a foreign bride. Put it to death. But I need it. You don't need anything more than you need the kingdom of God. They don't have to just be those kind of things. They can be things that distract you from your call. Anything you say, I know I'm supposed to, but is a foreign bride in your life. Foreign brides did more damage to Israel than any attack from an outside enemy. You've heard it said that Nebuchadnezzar carried off the Jews and brought them to Jerusalem, right? I'm sorry, brought them to Babylon. That's not really what carried them off. You know what did? Foreign brides. It started with Solomon. His love for foreign women corrupted his walk with God so that he had child sacrifice in the temple. So that he had idolatry all over. Well, that thing affected his children, the nation. So that they were idolatrous. They were carried off into exile long before they ever went into exile. Because their leader allowed a foreign bride in his life. Listen to how Nehemiah said to deal with this. Think of Nehemiah as a pastor in this regard. And see if you would put up with this from a pastor. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. What could make a man of God act like that? Beat somebody and pull out their hair. He's trying to bring about a change in their life. And David said, may a righteous man strike me. Now, if somebody saw you sinning and walked up and slapped you across the face and said, come to your senses, would you turn around and slap them right back? Or would you be happy they slapped you to keep you from sinning? I found out that if people will tolerate you pointing out the exposed places in their wall, if they will tolerate you pointing out the sand ballots and the Tobias in their life and teaching you to stand against them, what they will not tolerate is you telling them to get rid of their foreign wives. They love them. They've nurtured those weaknesses. They've had them for years. And they don't want to get rid of them. If you look back at your life in the last five, seven years, you've never been able to get committed to the call of God on your life. You need to start examining the foreign brides that are in your life that are keeping you from getting committed. 
if there is always something that prevents you, you're either going to get to the end of your life and get slapped by the king, or you can take this slapping from a pastor now and save your life. You better put the kingdom first in your life, no matter what. Jesus is not going to accept the answer, it was my job. He's not going to accept the answer, it was my friends. He's not going to accept the answer, it was that church that failed me. Get rid of the foreign brides, dedicate yourself to God. Listen to what else he says. This, we'll finish here. It, I, I don't know, I like him. Nehemiah I'm talking about. Was it not because of marriages like that, or marriages like these, that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now, or must we hear now, that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? <laughs> Then he finds one of them who's a leader and throws him out of, of Jerusalem. You need to do that. What I'm asking for in closing is that we take an honest assessment of our lives. We look and see the places our walls need to be rebuilt. We'd be willing to stand in the gap, the low places of our friends' walls, of our brothers, to help them. That we refuse to submit to the attacks from inside, those Christians who will never please God because they're full of fear. That we also won't give in and backbite and devour other Christians. And thirdly, that we will not allow to remain in our lives loves we're not supposed to have. If you love hunting so much that it keeps you out of church, that's a foreign bride. If you love entertainment so much that your late evenings keep you out of church, that's a foreign bride. If you love anything so much that it affects your call in your walk with God, it's a foreign bride. Get rid of it. Pull its hair out and beat it. Say, but I can't. I, I love, I've given my word. You have to. What it comes down to is you either love Jesus enough to or you don't. I'm hoping by my words to stir you into action. To keep your life from remaining as it is today even though your lives are good. I'm hoping to promote change.